Freedom of speech. Fundamental rights. Freedom of uh, conscience. Academic freedom. Freedom of press. And the right to listen. You're listening to So To Speak, the free speech podcast. Brought to you by FIRE, the foundation for individual rights and expression. Ilya Shapiro, welcome on the show. Good to be with you. I don't know whether I'm back or I'm here for the first time, but but regardless, always a pleasure, Nico. <laughs> yeah, I, well, I, I don't think I've actually had a one-on-one interview with you, but we sometimes run the First Amendment salons, which are right. hosted by Ron Collins, the First Amendment scholar. And you, I think, and Bob Corn Revere did a debate on Masterpiece Cake Shop way back when. And we ran that as a podcast episode. So some of our longtime listeners might might recall you from that. It was you, right? You did that? Uh, it could be. I have <laughs> views on uh, on uh, Masterpiece Cake Shop and whatever else. I always like a good salon, all the uh, all the absinthe and, and all that. So anyway. Yeah. At the time, you were still vice president at the Cato Institute, doing, and uh, you were director of Cato's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies. Right publisher over at the Cato Supreme Court Review. And then you had a very, very brief tenure as executive director and senior lecturer at Georgetown Center for the Constitution that I want to talk about at the brief, tail end of the Brief, but meaningful as I was once introduced, yes. Well, you know, I, th- I think it very much kind of shaped the conversation surrounding free expression and academic freedom all of last year in 2022. But again, I, w- I want to get to that. Now you're, you're over at the Manhattan Institute, huh? Yeah. Um, people are like, how do you like New York? I mean, I like it just fine. I've been there exactly twice in the eight months since I've been with the Manhattan Institute. I've, I've been to Florida more often, frankly. Uh, yeah, no, it's great. Uh, and, and ironically, I, I feel more free uh, than I did when, when I was at Cato, at least the last little while. So, um, no, so far, so good. Yeah, I will say we're getting you back to New York next month, right? April 18th, you're speaking at FIRE's kind of big expansion gala. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of uh, surreal to see your your marketing. It's like featuring Killer Mike, Nadine Strauss, and, and Ilya Shapiro. I'm like, huh, okay, all right. You get strange bedfellows when you do the free speech work in a nonpartisan way, right? You get a you get a famous rapper, the uh, someone from the ACLU, and someone from the Manhattan Institute. You know, I've I've never changed my views. The world just uh, you know the, the the issues of the day and the way that they present themselves just uh, reconstitute themselves in, in funny ways. There, there's this famous Thomas Jefferson quote, which says, uh, and matters of style flow like the current and matters of principle stand like a rock. Uh, and so, you know, I, I try and- That should uh, be a t-shirt. That should be fire swag right there. It should. It should be. In fact, it should be a paperweight, like a rock paperweight with that emblazoned on it or something like that. We have a swag task force here at FIRE. Uh, who's responsible for determining what sort of swag we give out. And uh, they've come up with some cool things in the past, like fire socks with our fire logo on them. Uh, I don't know that we can mass produce rocks, though. Paperweights, <laughs> probably. But uh, we'll have to figure that one out. Ilya, I wanted to have you on the show because, one, I, we've just never done a one-on-one conversation together. And at the end, I want to get to kind of your Georgetown issues, as well as your recent speech at the University of Denver, which cause some fireworks, but I want to talk a little bit about some, I just, I just try to keep you employed, Nico, give you things to talk about and work on. So, well, I've been doing this free speech podcast for seven years now. So I, I very much need those sorts of things. So keep sending, (laughs) keep sending them my way. But, uh, our world world's kind of intersected because I'm, uh, 
I'm friends with Noam Dorman, who's the owner of the Comedy Cellar, and I've been a longtime fan of his podcast, uh, which is just an interesting mix of comedy and current events. And I heard you go on the show maybe last week uh, talking about Fox Dominion and that whole defamation lawsuit. Right. And I found your guys' conversation to be fascinating, but also angering because I wanted to ask you questions <laughs> that Noam didn't ask you. Noam's well, also- well, He's not a lawyer. Well, actually, he graduated from Penn Law, but he oh, never, well, he never became a lawyer. Right. Um, he never became a practicing lawyer. He ended up owning the Comedy Cellar and having a really successful business doing comedy. But uh, he actually is uh, has legal training. And uh, But I was like, I know Ilya, so I'm just going to invite him on the show and ask him all of the questions that Noam didn't ask him. So you know, let's, let's jump right in. Ilya, I thought you did a really good job on that show of kind of laying the groundwork. Do you want to lay kind of the groundwork of what's going on in that case, and I can fill in some relevant details? Sure. So uh, what we talked about there was um, Fox News is in the news because of the uh, texts and uh, and other materials that have come out, uh, deposition transcripts from uh, the lawsuit that Dominion Voting Systems, uh, manufacturer of uh, voting technology, uh, has... Uh, launched against Fox for defaming it as a business in its uh, coverage of the uh, 2020 election aftermath when it had uh, Sidney Powell and, and others on uh, concocting conspiracy theories about, uh, you, know, you know, the election being stolen and all this. And, yeah, and I mean, some that of them... Yeah, I think there some of them are like right that Dominion is owned by Venezuela, uh, Venezuela, right, um, and, and made technology that uh, that 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 enabled the the stealing of the election and in, in in all sorts of ways. So, uh, the, I mean, the, the the point of the the lawsuit is that our business was hurt by things that Fox did in a way that was uh, de, you know, defamatory, hurt, hurt our business reputation, um, you know, with, uh, with the intent to, to harm us and, and things like this. Uh, but the, what, what, what the materials that came out that got all the attention were that, um, uh, statements by executives and on-air hosts, Tucker Carlson, uh, Laura Ingram, uh, you know, all, all, all the rest of it, uh, saying that they, they understood that, uh, what uh, they were putting on, uh, was, uh, crazy and uh but that they had to do it to maintain their ratings in other words it's not that they're big fans of donald trump's uh big lie narrative as it were uh but uh to to maintain their business model they had to continue having these people including uh dominion alleges these defamatory statements against uh, uh its business and so you know the, the legal case uh, might be is a high bar because of new york times versus sullivan the supreme court case about having to establish actual malice when you're harming uh, public figures for for defamation cases uh the, the 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 news was significant because of kind of the the journalism ethics and you know the insight into how fox news operates and they're you know they're putting on all of this stuff and fanning the flames of polarization in this country and, and all the rest of it while knowing uh, or you know thinking themselves uh, the the hosts and the executives that uh, that this is all uh, that this is all nonsense which again is a significant newsworthy things uh, on the legal side and this is what I got into in, in this podcast it still might be 
uh, a high bar, but uh, again, it, it resounds differently with the lawsuit against Fox than it does against the lawsuits against Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani, who are the ones who actually are, are saying this stuff. Yeah. Now, one question I have, and I haven't read the complaint, I'm, I have to admit that, is it, is it mostly focused on the guests that Fox invited rather than the hosts themselves, things that they said? Or is it too inextricably tied together that it's more or less the same thing that Fox it's, was It's more or less the same. Essentially, they're saying that, uh, uh, you know, at best recklessly, at worst intentionally and maliciously, Fox was uh, airing publishing uh, statements uh, that they knew, meaning Fox is a corporate entity through its officers and, and spokesmen that they knew, or at least thought themselves, uh, were lies or not true that were, as it turned out, damaging to uh, Dominion. That that's this. That's how I'd state the the, the legal case. Yeah, and I th- it's gotten attention recently because I'm assuming through discovery, we're learning about some of the conversations that happened on the back end at Fox. So on the one hand, you have people like Lou Dobbs and Maria Bartiromo, um, you know, doing what they do uh, on air and Tucker Carlson and Sean Hannity. But on the behind the scenes, you have executives and people like Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson saying, yeah, I'm not sure about this coverage, right? So I think one piece of discovery uh, two days after the election, you had a Fox Corporation lawyer saying Hannity is getting awfully close to the line with his commentary and guest tonight. Uh, Rupert Murdoch, the chair of Fox News, uh, expressed concern in a January 21st, 2020 email to Fox CEO Suzanne Scott saying, still getting mud thrown at us. Maybe Sean and Laura went too far. All, all very well for Sean to tell you he, uh, he is in despair about Trump. But what did he tell his viewers uh, you know, Murdoch said Th- that's exactly right. It's come out in discovery, and and the point isn't that this happened, you know, once or twice, you know, right after the election, but again and again and again after Dominion's lawyers notified Fox's lawyers that these things need to be corrected; these are errors. So they were on notice, and still Fox persisted in publishing, putting on air uh, all of these statements that were allegedly defamatory despite uh, Fox knowing uh, or not not themselves believing that they were true. Yeah, there was a recent email that came out in Discovery, and I guess the judge in the case kind of lambasted them all because they're, they're keeps being triggered. They keep discovering new things that they need to introduce into the record, right? And uh, But I guess Maria Bartiromo, who seemed to be a true believer in the conspiracy theories, right, or the, you know, the, the things that Trump and his team were saying, was approached by a Dominion spokesperson um, about the guests she was having on the show. And she invited the Dominion CEO onto the show and the spokesperson didn't respond, but said, you know, Sidney Powell is trying to smear a company with completely unsubstantiated allegations and they're unsubstantiated because they're untrue and then talks about the evidence. But it seems like at least in that case, Maria had invited the CEO to come on and, and rebut it. I want to dig into kind of what the legal standards are here in determining the liability that Fox might face. Dominion suing them for, for $1.6 billion uh, is is my understanding. But here's the, here's the main crux of my question and why I think this case is so challenging. People, journalists, quote people in news stories, have guests on the show all the time with whom they disagree, who they believe think their opinions are bunk, uh, who spout, frankly, what they consider to be bullshit. But those opinions are a part of the, some national story, 
right? Um, for example, you could you could have someone from CNN interviewing someone who stormed the Capitol who can give the reasonings for storming the Capitol. And while the CNN reporter might know or think that those things are untrue, it's still newsworthy to know why the people who are engaged in a national news story are doing what they're doing, right? And in this case, you had Donald Trump you know, making these arguments, as baseless as they might be. That's the president of the United States. It's And Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani were a part of its team. So you know, on one hand, just kind of putting the uh, the guests on the show to talk about it, and then holding Fox liable for that, you know, could create a chilling effect on reportage. The other hand, it's interesting here because the hosts are, you know, their their opinion, uh, you know, opinion news shows often uh, are often engaged in that commentary as well. Meanwhile, you have people behind the scenes saying it. So it's, it just seems a, a lot more messy. And I worry about you know, whether a judgment against Fox in this case would make it more difficult to quote people on one side of a, of a national news story that's almost hard to ignore. Or if you have to do the thing that a lot of outlets are doing now, which is saying uh, you know, putting baseless or untrue before you know, presenting <laughs> Trump's you know, opinion about the election, which is – it's something that has come into more fa- become fashionable in recent years that you didn't used to see all the time because it's often editorializing. Well, I think it's it's almost like a multiple bites at the apple uh, uh, type scenario, or you know, you get one free pass, but after that, uh, you start becoming liable. And in, in the sense that the the key details, legally speaking, are that the hosts and executives uh, are essentially uniformly. Uh, saying that the people that they're putting on, the narrative that they're advancing, even if couched in, I'm just asking questions, uh, almost disingenuousness uh, in the way that, that Tucker Carlson is known for doing, um, that you know they, they, they themselves believe that what they're doing, what they're putting on, what they're publishing, what they're allowing to spread or facilitating the spread of is uh, malicious lies that uh, the argument goes from Dominion are defamatory. Uh, whether they are defamatory or not is a separate. I suppose it's a fact question. I suppose that's a jury question. But um, the, the the legal standard is they they bear complicity in this because they subjectively believe that it's false. They're acting with intent to spread this stuff. So it's not that they're simply putting it on as newsworthy because the president's saying something or the president's lawyer yeah. saying something. But again and again, they're, they're keeping this narrative alive. Uh, and after the first time, it's, you know, after being put on notice by the lawyers and shown uh, evidence that it's not true. Uh, and yet they, they persist in doing that. That's, I think, the strongest presentation uh, of, of what's going on. Now, what's interesting is, on the other hand, Sidney Powell and uh, Giuliani and the others who go on and talk about this stuff, are they then not liable because they... Um, let's stipulate really believe all that stuff and it's just their opinion and you can't be held liable for defamation if it's just your opinion man yeah um and so you get this this ironic outcome where the fox executives who don't believe in the harmful stuff are liable but those who do believe in it and are actually the ones saying it directly uh, are not liable but you know that sort of indicates um some oddness i would characterize it as in our defamation law. Well, let's talk a little bit about defamation law, right? So New York Times v. Sullivan, which is uh, 
not as revered as it used to be. You have Clarence Thomas and Neil Gorsuch on the. Supreme I'll, I'll just be on the record that um, I'm, you know, I'm a student of Richard Epstein, the the famous uh, University of Chicago uh, law professor and, and legal scholar, one of the most cited legal scholars of of our time. Uh, I had him at the at, at U Chicago Law School, you know, back in the day, and he was against New York Times versus Sullivan before it was cool. And I, I think I agree with him uh, on those old school grounds. Nothing to do with you know modern social media company regulation or anything like that. Well, I mean, so let's dig into that a little bit uh, in the context of kind of discussing the standard because I feel like a lot of people think of New York Times versus Sullivan as doing what subsequent cases did actually did. So New York Times v. Sullivan presented the actual malice standard, which you can define for us in a moment here, um, as it applied to public officials, right? Uh, you know, people high up in government. Intending to do harm. I don't know the actual, you know, lawyerly standard, but that's how I think of it in my mind. Yeah. Well, in, in, in later cases, it was extended to public figures, which is like celebrities. Including you know. temporary public figures, which I never understood. It's like, yeah, if it's newsworthy, purpose. if it rises to the level of something that people care about, you're automatically not liable because you become a temporary public figure. Yeah, and I and I had a conversation on last podcast actually was about New York Times v. Sullivan and, and Floyd Abrams was, you know, the famed uh, First Amendment lawyer. And I, you know, I... I I didn't have any critics in New York Times v. Sullivan on the show. I wish I had known you were a critic yourself. <laughs> I would have invited you on. But I, I tried to play the critic as well and talk about the Nicholas Sandman case uh, on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, you know, Does this guy become a limited-purpose public figure because someone just so happened to film a confrontation that happened in public, right? So you have on one hand the, the kind of public figure standard you know, where the bar for defamation is very high. Um, and then you have beneath that uh, public figures um, who are held to the same actual malice standard is my understanding. And then you have these limited purpose public figures who become part of like a limited public controversy and the Barford you know, defamation there is also fairly high. And I feel like some of the people who are critiquing New York Times v. Sullivan are actually critiquing the cases that came later that expanded the precedent of New York Times v. Sullivan, the actual malice standard to public figures and, and limited purpose public figures, and I and I and I, um, you know, and and the actual malice standard. I don't have the exact verbiage in front of me, but it's you're not acting with actual malice. You know, you should have known that this was untrue, or acted with reckless disregard for the truth. Right. And right. and and so I mean, is your is your critique with all of those buckets or is it most, is, I mean, it's it, definitely with the limited purpose public figure standard, uh, which, uh, again, you know, anytime something becomes controversial by definition becomes a limited purpose public figure, you know, my, my imbroglio with Georgetown, which made national news, does that mean all of a sudden I'm, I'm a, I'm a public figure. Uh, and I, and I wasn't before, um, it's bizarre. It, it, it's sort of what it's, what it's, you know, it, you might be right that the most of the criticism comes from how, it's been interpreted, but the idea that we have that media companies are essentially exempt from liability for defamation, that doesn't sit right with me. And I think that's where Epstein is coming from. I, I want to ask a little bit about this case, right? Because so you have public figures, you have limited purpose public figures, and you have public officials, right? All protected kind of under the, the Sullivan lineage uh, of, of cases. How does a corporation like Dominion fit into that 
constitutional analysis are do you know i mean it's i i haven't looked at it I'd, I'd be talking about it off the top of my head but it's in the in the same sense that uh corporations have are are legal persons um for this among many other uh purposes but certainly not all um you know going back to the debate over citizens united uh and they have reputations that can be damaged uh in fact, for businesses, presumably you can put a, it's easier to put a dollar uh, figure on that damage than, than for individuals even. Uh, and so you, you, you defame the, the, the corporation uh, as uh, corporations typically are set of to derive their rights uh, from the individuals that make them up. And when you, you know, when you damage corporate rep- uh, 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 reputations, you damage the shareholders effectively. Yeah. And Dominion voting systems, I mean, they're, their uh, systems were in use in 28 states in 2020. I, I, it'd be interesting to see if, as a result of, I mean, I remember they were being attacked by Democrats in the 2004 elections. Uh, John Kerry made noises about you know, Ohio or something. I mean, um, it, it, yeah, these voting machines seem to be uh, the subject of conspiracy theories all coming and going. Yeah, I mean, but we. You... I guess we did just have a have a midterm election. I, I guess you could show damages in a certain respect if you by showing if like any Republican states, for example, stopped using those systems. Right. Um, right. But I've I've just I've just found this case to be uh, fascinating because, like all defamation cases, they're fact intensive, and obviously the facts in this case present uh, that we've discovered through discovery uh, present a lot of intrigue, but it raises a lot of complicated complicated questions about uh, fair reportage the ethics surrounding reporting and you know who should be held liable for for defamation and i guess it's going both both sides are seeking summary judgment in the case and um i read an article that said a trial is expected the start of april i mean can you explain that that procedure how that kind of works uh, so summary judgment is um you know, in viewing the facts in in a light uh, uh, most favorable to the uh, uh, to the other side, to the side that's not moving for summary judgment. Although here they're cross motions. So anyway, they're basically saying uh, uh, no material facts are in dispute, mm-hmm. uh, and therefore a ruling can be made uh, on the law. You don't need a trial because n- trials are for fact finding, and so whether it's a jury or a judge, they're they're determining you know who's who's right in a he said, he said, she said situation, or given the circumstantial evidence, is the person guilty or liable for such and such an action? Uh, here, a motion for summary judgment in a, in a civil lawsuit says, okay, uh, ex- viewing the facts in the light most favorable to the other side, uh, we would say that no facts are in dispute, just rule on the law. That's mm-hmm. what the that, that's what they're that the, that's what they're moving and it is and it is fascinating. I mean, the, the, the latest motion, I think it's more than 200 pages. And that's where all this stuff uh, comes out uh, from uh, from uh, discovery, and they're basically saying, uh, uh, "Look, there can be no dispute that, um, uh, from Dominion's perspective, Fox acting through its executives and hosts put on, continued putting on, even after Dominion warned them and corrected their facts, told them to correct their facts, still kept doing it. Uh, this stuff that they knew to be false." and was harmful to dominion that's what they're saying and there's no there's no facts in dispute nobody no reasonable fact finder could dispute that this stuff this evidence that they're presenting is detrimental uh and is 
subjectively thought by Fox to be false. So I read, so I read this article talking about the procedure that said in-person arguments are scheduled for March 21st. And then it said in the next sentence, a trial is scheduled to start on April 17th with jury selection four days early. Is that wrong? Like you can't give your, no, motion. I mean, you, I mean, they can always, the, the district court process is, is fluid. It's, uh, you know, and we're, we're sort of used to talking about the Supreme court, uh, and a lot of us who, who, you know, speak in the media about constitutional issues or appellate lawyers who are lawyers are you know focused on appeals. Those are much more set pieces. You have the universe of facts, the record is set, you argue based on these briefs, the argument data is all it's all kind of clean. Uh, the trial level, you know, there's a lot more there are a lot more moving pieces. So the judge could at any time uh, postpone the trial, cancel the trial, wait till to hear argument on these motions and then cancel the trial hear the arguments, rule from the bench denying the motion, and the trial goes on under the current schedule. But, you know, so, so currently it's understandable that the, the, the argument on the motion would be scheduled for before the trial, and then the trial uh, goes on. And if the judge needs more time to, to rule, then they'll just, they'll just uh, delay the trial. I didn't ask you to talk about this, but if I could th- show you, throw you a quick curveball about a free speech question that's in the news, um, TikTok, there, there are movements to, to ban it not just in, in, in the federal, by the federal government, but you have states like Montana, for example. Um, and the arguments can be twofold, right? There's, there's concerns about children and propaganda, Chinese propaganda, but also about data privacy. My understanding is that the Chinese government essentially has a backdoor to any company's data, uh, any Chinese company's data, uh, if it wants it. And, and uh, Mark Warner and uh, Senator Thune, I think, introduced a bill the other day which um, seeks to ban ban TikTok in the United States, not just for government contractors um, or the government itself on government devices, which has been in place for for a little while, but also for uh, all citizens, presumably. And I was just wondering what sort of constitutional questions you think that poses both on the on the First, you know, First Amendment side, but also maybe the Bill of Attainder side. And is there anything <laughs> from the Huawei and ZTE stuff that happened recently that might might lend some insight? In well, Bill of Attainder, which means punishing for past behavior that people weren't on notice for. I don't think it's that because it's not like their TikTok is being uh, sued for stuff that went on in the past that, that wasn't illegal in the past when, you know, when, when that happens. So I don't, I don't think that's... But isn't it also the targeting of a, like an, a, an individual person or company for... for punishment might not be the right word, but like, well, it, it ultimately collapses into the national security justification and courts are quite deferential uh, to government on national security matters. And the, the argument is this is an arm of uh, a foreign agent who's hostile, the communist party of China. And, um, you know, we can't willy nilly allow them to get all of this uh, information about American citizens um, it's not a bad argument. Again, I haven't been looking at it very closely, um, but um, you know, from a, from a you know the, the the policy argument, both about privacy and national security, is certainly plausible. Um, from you know, you can imagine that the strongest example. Let's say it was the, the, the Chinese government was surveilling and 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 collecting all of this data on Americans to be able to better manipulate our elections, influence public discourse, all of this, you know, spy on, you know, get, get the wisdom of crowds and learn lots about our defense capabilities because of bits and pieces they pick up here and there. Well, what if this is that? 
Yeah. Right. What, what if, what if this is the, the surreptitious bug that's, that's meant to surveil in that way? If, if, if all of that is true, then I think it stands up to constitutional scrutiny. Well, sorry for throwing you that curveball. Uh, just something that's been coming up in the news, and I, f- I figured, like, I would kind of get, you know, get grab your opinion on it. You know, this is really at the outer a- edges of what I can feign expertise in. <laughs> as, a, as a as a Gen Xer, you know, I I do Facebook, I do Twitter poorly, apparently, uh, and anything else. You know, I think I have an Instagram account that I've been on like twice, uh, and then quickly closed up and. Uh, yeah, TikTok. Uh, you don't want to see me. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. You know, interpretive. I think one of my friends, uh, Professor Elon Warman at Arizona State, does like uh, TikTok interpretations of different constitutional clauses. I don't know if that's mm. like a dance for you know. I want to see his dance for the privileges or immunities clause or something. Uh, who knows? It's 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 above. I'm a simple constitutional lawyer. It's above my ken. Yeah, I mean TikTok. It does have niche communities and there is a law community and and it can be used to for really valuable educational purposes it depends what you watch fully and how the algorithm determines what you like but uh oh that algorithm that you know supreme court recently heard argument in a couple of cases about whether these companies can be can be liable for their algorithm recommending more you know terrorist videos that uh of you know arguably radicalizes and causes these these actions also very interesting uh cases that I, I, I plead, uh, uh, relative ignorance about. Yeah. We've talked about those cases bef- uh, on this podcast before, and it sounds like the court is, is sort of skeptical of the arguments being made. Um, um, so I, I'm doubtful that that, uh, that these, well, the court would... is skeptical of their own full understanding of exactly the, how the technology works. And they don't want to, as they have with technology for you know decades, they don't want to take some step that, you know, completely uh, skews the way that the markets operate. And, you know, in this case, you know, breaks the internet as it were. So yeah, I don't think we're going to have a, a sweeping ruling. Yeah. Who was it? Kagan who said we're not the nine greatest experts on the internet. Right. Or something right. Like that. right. Um, yeah. I mean, there, I mean, it, anyway, it's, it's, it's really interesting cases, but TikTok's algorithm is super powerful. Like I'm, I'm on TikTok uh, for better or worse. I don't post anything, but I follow. And it's it's it is addictive. I mean, they it is more powerful than Instagram's algorithm. We're starting to see a platform shift where it's not who you follow and your feed is just populated by the people you follow. It's like the algorithm learning what you're interested in and feeding you content from anyone, regardless of whether you follow them. Um, and in that regard, it's more powerful and 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 also more addictive. And that's why you see some of these state legislatures trying to regulate um, not just TikTok uh, because it's well, super we do, addictive. We do have the, the, the findings that Jonathan Haidt has been writing about this, uh, um, you know, the, 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 the mental health issues, especially in teenage girls, especially as it turns out, white liberal teenage girls um, uh, from social media in the last uh, decade and, and depression and, and all of these different things. Uh, and how that contributes to our illiberal moment in higher education. I mean, it's mind-blowing stuff that he's doing, and apparently he's about to publish two books at the same time. Just, uh, but the, these insights from social psychology and the effect of of social media on that. So, quite apart from Chinese national security concerns, there could be kind of a, a health of the body politic uh, concerns. And, and Greg uh, co-wrote Coddling of the American by right. Greg Lukianoff with, with Jonathan Haidt, which was way before its time and blowing the whistle on kind of the effects of social media potentially on, on mental health. They, they made these arguments um, 
long before you have the sort of robust data that you have now. Jonathan Haidt, I think, wrote about this this morning. He has he has a Substack called I, th- I think After Babel, in which he highlighted some of the most recent data, and he has a open source Google document which consolidates all the data for any of our listeners who might be interested in that. But if TikTok goes. Um, one of Fire's most powerful platforms for communicating with younger audiences <laughs> goes. I mean, we're uh, Fire has over fifty thousand followers on TikTok, and it seems to outperform our peers on that platform. Well, if you want to do a guest post on my Substack, Shapiro's Gavel, you're, you're welcome to. Yeah, well, it's it's an interesting question, and I'll I'll link your your Substack uh, in in the show notes here. But I now want to pivot to <laughs> you said you said you do Twitter, and then parentheses parentheses, apparently not very well, which I'm assuming <laughs> is a reference to what what happened to you at Georgetown. I don't know that I need to recapitulate it for all of our listeners, but you know, long story short, you sent a tweet um, about uh, President Joe Biden's decision essentially to nominate, what was it, a black woman to the yes. Supreme Court? And those were the only candidates he was going to consider. And in your opinion, uh, U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit Judge uh, Sri Srivasan, is that how you pronounce the last name? Yeah. Um, was a better choice than you say, but alas, he doesn't fit into the latest intersectionality hierarchy, so we'll get a letter, lesser black woman. And this led to law school dean William Trenner denouncing the tweet, calling it appalling and at odds with everything we stand for at Georgetown Law. I think the argument that kind of animated your your tweet, which is that you know we're going to get a lesser candidate because um, because you're restricting the pool by race and sex. Yeah, there was an ABC News Ipsos poll that found that 76% of respondents said that the president should consider all nominees regardless, regardless well, of race that, or that's, gender. That's just a right-wing rag organization. <laughs> well, 54% of Democrats surveyed said right. said the same thing. And, and you admitted that your tweet was a little bit uh, ham-fisted. I could have phrased it better. You know? Yeah. Who yeah. among us hasn't sent a bad tweet? You know? But um, this resulted in a 122-day investigation. We did the calculations here at FIRE. And I should fully disclose we helped provide counsel for you in the situation because this, uh, to our to our minds, was a clear violation of your rights as a, uh, a faculty member and academic at Georgetown and violated, although it is a private school, it's, it's contractual promises for the untrammeled expression of ideas and information. That's a direct quote from them. And their, their promise that all members of the university community enjoy the broadest possible latitude to speak right, listen, challenge, and learn. Uh, didn't quite live up to that in our minds, but the 122-day the investigation was longer than 12-round trips that, to the that's, moon. That's now known as, as a Shapiro. We know the Scaramucci is 13 days, while a Shapiro is you know, four months and six days. So. For a 45-word tweet, and I think, you know, it's... Um, but you were reinstated, right, at the outcome of it. And um, yeah, after spending, you know, however much, you know, a million dollars or whatever on their... Outside counsel, uh, Hogan Lovell's uh, white shoe DC law firm to uh, advise them on this investigation, uh, employing two offices, uh, human resources and, and the uh, uh, Office of Institutional Diversity, Equity, and Affirmative Action that uh, you'd think a law school could, could apply the law, meaning these relatively short uh, university policies to the facts, my tweet, and in half an hour, come up with a, an outcome uh, based on this so-called investigation. But yeah, it took that long. And eventually, a junior associate at this law firm presumably looked at the calendar and said, oh, well, he wasn't an employee yet when he tweeted, so the policies didn't apply. Uh, and yeah, I celebrated that technical victory. But then I got the uh, the fine print, the 
the 10-page investigation uh, report uh, from the diversocrats, which basically said, uh, had I been uh, uh, an employee and going forward, uh, were I to say something similar that offended someone uh, along these grounds, along these lines, then, then that would make me subject to discipline. So uh, I said, I can't, I can't live under those terms. And I made what we lawyers call a, a noisy exit, uh, publishing my uh, resignation letter in the Wall Street Journal, as one does. And, uh, and away we went. Yeah. Dean Trenner's finding letter, I think, is worth, worth reading because he describes your comments as harmful, antithetical to the work of Georgetown Law. Uh, and that said, you know, if you were to make another similar or more serious remark as a Georgetown employee, uh, a hostile environment based on race, gender, and sex likely would be created. So it's essentially, it, it, they got out of it by saying you, you had already accepted the job and weren't an employee yet. It was like a week before you were supposed to start by saying, oh, he hadn't started yet. Therefore, the policies didn't apply. But if you do it again, or if you were to to uh, create something that ginned up the mob again, um, you can't really trust that our policies are going to protect you because we're more or less suggesting here that they won't. Um, and I think any reasonable observer would understand how can an academic exist in that environment with the, where the sort of damage. And clearly that was aimed not just at me, but, uh, you know, pour encourager les autres, as, as they say, to, to show, you know, shot across the bow of all faculty and staff, uh, saying, you know, stay in line. So I want to ask you, because that story <laughs> captured the public's consciousness, headline news. What is it like to be at the center of something like that? Well, I've written about it uh, at my Substack, Shapiro's Gavel, and I'm writing about it more in this book that I'm working on now. The working title is Canceling Justice, the Illiberal Takeover of Legal Education. It's, um, I say that the first four days, so after my tweet, um, uh, before the dean announced that I was indeed onboarded and immediately suspended with pay, uh, pending this investigation. The, those first four days I called hell. Uh, and it was like my whole world was crumbling uh, in front of me. Everything I'd worked towards, uh, my career, my professional reputation, my just, just, just everything, my ability to function as a, as a, as a scholar, as a pundit, um, uh, my ability to support my family for that matter. Uh, I was, you know, between jobs, I was leaving Cato. I was at a vulnerable position. Um, you know, there were physical manifestations. Uh, we talk about legal standards of things. There's, you know, intentional infliction of emotional distress and all that, which you can't win unless there's physical manifestations of that. Well, you know, there, there was that it affected my family. Um, you know, I, I would only wish I, I, I say, you know, it's, not that I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy. I would only wish that on the people that first fanned the flames and instigated the the, the Twitter mob that that moved to the online world. Mark Joseph Stern of of Slate and and, and others on there, um, and then began four months of purgatory, where it was this surreal world of okay, I'm getting paid, but I what literally was not allowed to set foot on Georgetown campus. That was considered quote unsafe, and I wasn't to do allowed to do any work for the Center for the Constitution that I was hired into. The center, that's all the more important because as we learned, the rest of the law school is a center against the Constitution. Um, and this, as, as Fire documented about, you know, how many trips to the moon we can take and the time it takes to investigate this or trips by the, the Mayflower across the Atlantic and the gestation of the Georgetown Bulldog and all these different things. Um, 
uh, it was, you know, after the first month or so when I was interviewed and made a written submission and it just became very clear, very quickly that, that it was a farce. And at that point, you know, I was in this limbo and I was trying to, you know, my counsel was basically saying, all right, as long as you don't directly criticize Georgetown, you can do whatever you want. And so I was on the road speaking, including one time where I made national news again for having an event shut down at, at the law school, formerly known as Hastings. It's no longer called that because Mr. Hastings, it turns out, did some politically incorrect things by 21st century standards. Um, oh, I didn't know they changed the name. I oh, yes. It's, it's now University of California College of Law at San Francisco, UC Law SF for short. And uh, yeah, you know, speaking and writing on 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 the Supreme Court battle on all sorts of different issues, um, uh, and and until this denouement, the 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 reinstatement, uh, but uh, but ultimately a forced resignation and and what have you. Um, I, I you know I never sought you know I'd worked with fire plenty. That's how I'd already known you and all yeah. the folks I quickly was able to call upon for help uh, to whom I'm grateful. Uh, uh, during that trying period, uh, I'd work, you know, supporting you with with amicus briefs or joining together on briefs and things like this. I didn't think I'd ever be a client. I never never thought I'd be the, the target of one of these um, illiberal uh, moments. Didn't seek to be a poster boy for cancel culture or anything like that. Um, but that's the way that uh, things turned out. And as they say, man plans and God laughs. And so, you know, people ask, you know, did your views on speech change or anything like that. None of my views changed. My professional priorities changed. Obviously, I'm spending much more time on these issues than I would have otherwise, even though I, I don't think I became, you know, more of, a, of an advocate for uh, free speech, academic freedom, civil discourse, all, all that due process than I was before. Yeah. FIRE does our annual Worst Colleges for Free Speech, where we investigate uh, all the cases of censorship that we took on in the previous year and create kind of a 10 worst list. And some years we decide that a school has come up on our list so frequently that we're tired of talking about them and adding them to the list because they're crowding out a bunch of other bad actors too. And so we give them a lifetime censorship award. And this, this year Georgetown got it because I mean, what they did to you isn't the first time they've done some things like that, right? They've, they've done it to other faculty members as well. Uh, they did it to a Bernie Sanders student group at the law school that we helped out, I think back in, in the, during the primaries of 2016. And, uh, one of those students, Alex Atkins, I believe his name is, um, testified that we helped testify in Congress because one of the things colleges and universities will do is say, we can't have these political groups on campus because it violates our tax exempt sta status, which is bunk. And the IRS has issued a you know, memo more or less to that effect is, you know, no, they're not speaking for the university. They're speaking for themselves. And then there was a Hoyas for Choice group uh, that they've repeatedly refused to recognize. It's a Jesuit school, of course, but promises free expression. Um, doesn't create any sort of carve out um, for groups that oppose certain Jesuit, Jesuit values, in this case, uh, pro-life values. So we decided to give the school a lifetime censorship award. And we actually uh, drove a mobile billboard i saw that i wanted to ask you if if there was any reaction to that or did did uh, anybody i mean what anything happen i saw that I uh, yeah i mean you, you you see people tweeting about it you but you never know quite how much it might stick into the craw of the administration um sometimes you get inklings of it from people who are 
privy to those conversations. For example, we did it at Emerson College when they were um, going after a TPUSA chapter there that was handing out stickers that said China kind of sus and called them uh, anti-Asian hate group essentially when the vice president of that group was herself Asian. It was just a weird, bizarre situation. But we heard that the administration really didn't like them. The student newspaper kept asking us, when are you going to get rid of your mobile, mobile billboard? Because it's a it's a metropolitan campus, and the the main building is on a public street. So we just parked <laughs> that mobile billboard right in front of the admin <laughs> building for two straight days, and we took out ads on the Boston Tea. So that's one of the kind of guerrilla tactics we like to use. But we had one of our staff members out there taking pictures because we post about it on social media. <laughs> and there were uh, prospective student groups walking past it, like, what, what is this? And so we talked to them, right? You know, this is what, so, yeah. Don't censor your students and faculty and you won't get fired as mobile billboard. Right. We did right. that to Rensselaer Polytechnic. And we didn't do the mobile billboard, but we did one of those, um, those uh, big giant checks uh, or certificates, uh, so to speak. And we walked into the administration building at RPI and tried to present it to the president and <laughs> filmed ourselves getting escorted out by uh, <laughs> law enforcement. And we pol- politely complied, but we got it on video, which is the point, right? And so we try and we try and do those sorts of guerrilla tactics to to create greater awareness for what we think is, you know, an abridgment of either contractual rights that are guaranteed to faculty members such as yourself or, or of the first amendment. And, you know, you'd think it's such a simple point that y'all are making, but it gets misunderstood. And this might, you can use this as a segue to talk about my recent Denver experience. Um, because, uh, so I was able to speak at Denver university law school. This is, you know, two days ago, we're recording this on, or is it university of Denver? It's University of Denver Law School. It's, it's shortened to DU for some reason, even though it's, it should be UD, but it's, it's yeah, University oh, of Denver okay, Law gotcha. School, uh, Sturm College of Law, which is a private school. Uh, but in any event, uh, they uh, you know, grudgingly, uh, the dean said, yeah, we have this policy. We have to allow this speaker. We're going to, we stand for free speech. So they, you know, they made all the right noises. And there's a, there's a recording. I tweeted out uh, the, the, the recording of the dean making the, the statement before, uh, before I spoke, and there were no incidents during my event, which I thought went well. Uh, we had Q and A, and students acting, asking you know skeptical questions, and nobody was cut off, and all that. Uh, but um, the administration sort of overplayed its hand. It's like they just can't get it right because they don't really know what to believe. They just want to kind of you know not have any, not make national news. The, you know, the goal was not to become the next Yale or Hastings. What, they well, they want to please. They want to please everyone, and they as a result, they end up pleasing right. no one. So, so yeah. what? What the what they did was they they shunted protesters to designated free speech zones, and fire. Uh, you know, inquired, "Why are you doing this? This seems to you know violate all sorts of things and principles." And then uh, uh, fire. I saw on social media was being criticized. You know, why are you for the for those who want to cancel and disrupt Shapiro? And uh, completely misunderstanding the point, because then I agreed with your point yeah. about that. Like, and we appreciate disruption. That. And the point is, you know, as long as they're not blocking hallways, violating the fire code, you know, allowing students to go back and forth, disrupting the event, all of that, banging on doors in the hallway outside, right, or, disrupting you know. classes and and all the rest of it, um, you know, they should be able to to express themselves. Um, they, they weren't allowed to bring signs into my event. Uh, even if it was, you know, I can understand so in some places they, you know, people put up signs to block the speaker from the audience. No, they're not doing that. They can't even have signs of, of, of any kind. Um, so, you know, overkill, uh, in that sense. And so just can't quite get it right when you're, when you're not actually doing it for, for the right reasons, uh, you, you can't calibrate this right. 
yeah, I don't think people understood Fire's position on this. Is that, as we know, we we will defend Ilya Shapiro when his rights are being violated, and we have been long on the record that we oppose heckler vetoes, uh, and that we should allow peaceful protests that don't disrupt the event. Um, um, but they shouldn't be cabined off into so-called free speech zones. And Fire's filed numerous lawsuits over the years that you know. Have aren't, punished- aren't free speech zones what set off like the Berkeley free speech movement in the '60s? Isn't that what the administration there was doing to like Vietnam or civil rights protests? I think it was partially that. Uh, I don't know if there were free speech zones so much as it's like categorical prohibitions on doing like civil rights work um, on the outskirts of campus. But yeah, I mean, we've we've sued on behalf of a student at Modesto Junior College and Pierce College in California who were told that they needed to pass out their pocket constitutions in the free speech zone lest they be charged with trespassing. We had another, it seems California <laughs> is awful on these sorts of things. Cal Poly Pomona, we had an animal rights activist who couldn't hand out his PETA flyers unless he went to the free speech zone, which you can only use during like the free speech hours on the free speech days. <laughs> and you had to wear, you had to wear like a, a, a scarlet letter. You had to like have a badge on that said, I've gotten permission to, to exercise my first amendment rights here. We win all of those. So like, for it was, I think it was confusing for some people who see fire, who saw this as like, who were really concerned about the heckler's veto, like we are, and we think universities need to have clear policies that prevent people from disrupting speech, and those policies need to be enforced. Behavior that gets rewarded and gets repeated. What's the point of having a policy if the university, you know, a constitutional and 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 uh, policy, if you're never going to enforce it, then they're just going to assume that you're never going to enforce it in, in any way. But we also oppose free speech zones. So it's like, and we also protect the rights. In, in this case, it was the National Lawyers Guild who was going after you, calling for censorship, demanding that the administration cancel your speech. Like, fire going way back when will defend the rights of people who call for censorship. Um, and and so I think it was just a little bit confusing to people. It was interesting that the National Lawyers Guild didn't go after you for your Georgetown work, but for your Georgetown tweet, but rather for your work on DEI initiatives. Is that right? I guess so. Well, it was. Uh, I saw some of the flyers. There's some of the the students gave me flyers of, of theirs. It was kind of a confluence, you know. This this you know white supremacist who says you know, something about lesser black women also recently tweeted to uh, you know in support of avowed racist Chris Rufo. It was like a confluence of all sorts of things because Chris Rufo and I had worked on this proposed legislation, part of which is similar to something fire just put out against diversity statements and yeah. loyalty oaths and things like this, but, uh, you know, targeting uh, DEI structures and, and, and so forth. So it's kind of, a, and then afterwards, yesterday, the day after the event, um, the black law students association put out a statement on Instagram, which again, I'm not Instagram. So this was screenshotted to me, uh, where they, the, the main attack seemed to be that I, the, the argument that I was, uh, for meritocracy, meaning against the admission of black and other diverse students, even though only 2% of the student body was black. So, you know, just kind of none of which was part of my talk, which was about the importance of free speech on campus. But, but, but anyway. Yeah, I guess that National Lawyers Guild letter uh, is now no longer accessible. I mean, the response from the administration, uh, at least initially, seemed to be good. They said that they were warning against disruption of the event, 
Uh, they said that anyone who did disrupt the event would, quote, be subject to proceedings um, as well as potential referral to a professional licensing uh, authority. What <laughs> It was the National Review who wrote about this and, and had access to the letter. And one of the things the letter said was, we recognize that prohibiting Shapiro from speaking in our law school in some ways plays into his hand. In fact, his proposed speech is about the alleged silencing of conservatives, conservative academics. And then the National Review goes on to say, the alleged silencing, huh? I wonder how conservatives got that crazy idea into their heads. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're almost self-aware. Almost. You're almost there, buddy. You know? Yeah. But uh, you, you, you had a tweet thread today about some of the rigmarole that the student organizers in this That's case the real thing. So, yeah, it, you know, the, the university made it that my event went off uh, without disruption. So that's good. But we talked about the free speech zones, uh, the regulation of signs and other, you know, non-disruptive protests. Uh, but uh, to get there, the student organizers had to jump through a lot of hoops. Uh, yeah. A lot of emails, a lot of meetings, including this past Sunday with the vice chancellor of the whole university, who was none too pleased that they had invited me. Um, so this uh, clearly, they're, they're, you know, it's a chill on any organization that wants to invite a so-called controversial speaker, um, and that's where the effect. It's not so much a chilling, a chill on the speaker per se. I mean, you know, I'd rather not have to walk a gauntlet and be escorted by security everywhere. It's kind of annoying. I mean, it's kind of neat war story to tell with your friends over drinks later, I suppose, but like, it's, you know, a, a bit of a headache, but you know, not enough to dissuade me from going places where I'm invited to speak. But for the students who are there, you know, before, during and after and have to live with this stuff, you know, at the margins, the students are simply going to say, it's not worth the hassle. I'm not going to invite someone like that. Yeah. It's a tax on controversial speech. I mean, it's a speech tax and, uh, can you really blame students who decide that if I'm going to have to go through this every time I invite someone that people on the other side disagree with and don't like, like, is it worth it? I've got other shit I could spend my time on, right? And so it creates a chilling effect. Um, and it's a chilling effect that isn't often seen because, you know, the decision not to host someone doesn't can cancel headlines or create headlines unless, of course, they were invited and then subsequently right. disinvited. But like, you know, most of the time, you know, th those decisions because people just don't want to deal with the hassle that it's going to and the bureaucratic and 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 sort of mob tactics that seek to shut it down you, you just don't you just don't hear about this and um you know i, I think fire my colleagues in fires campus rights advocacy um department after seeing your tweet are trying to figure out what was going on there and what was this added burden that were added to these students after uh, they invited you to speak. Um, so we might have more to say on that front, but um, it's tough. I mean, to speaking to the, kind of the substance of what you were talking about at University of Denver while we got just a few more minutes here, like, so what are you seeing in law schools? You, you, we've heard about the stuff happening at Yale, uh, for example, but you know, what's, what's going on there? What's the chill that you are seeing that concerns you most? Self-censorship is the conversations that don't happen. Um, both professors and students feel they can't talk about certain things. Um, and this day and age, that means as much on the student listserv uh, in social media as it does uh, in person, in class. Um, uh, anyone who kind of deviates from uh, fairly rigid orthodoxy, you know, the Overton window is kind of moved to the left and narrowed. Uh, anyone who, you know, says anything is, is immediately... You know, slap down. There are social consequences. You know, there's the student culture aspect of it, 
on on top of administration things. And a lot of administrations, you know, aren't uh, heavy handed like Yale or, you know, allowing disruptions like Hastings did. Hastings has since uh, changed their uh, policies, although their policies seem to be pretty clear even when I was there. I don't know what the what the new policies, how, how exactly it's going to be different other than it needs to be enforced. Um, but uh, uh, just uh, the fundamental thing is deans, leaders have abandoned the idea of instilling a culture of speech and process and uh, kind of classical liberal values. Um, deans are very good. Law school deans are very good at imbuing what whatever the mission statement of the institution is, whether it's public service, uh, inclusion, um, you know, w- 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 service to the to the needy, you know, being officers of the court. I mean, wh- whatever they want to instill, they're they're, they're good at doing that. Uh, and uh, you know, free speech and civil discourse used to be those excellence, but now you know we learned from Stanford that excellence is code for white supremacy or something like that. Yeah, you're um, firm into their uh, their hate speech guidelines. I forget what they actually call it. But and the thing is, it's not that uh, Bill Trainer at Georgetown or Heather Gerken at Yale or you know Bruce Smith at University of Denver. They're not social justice warriors. They're not woke radicals. Uh, but the squeaky wheel gets the grease. And as you said, they try to please everybody and, and all too often uh, you know, get that wrong and never please uh, uh, anybody. On the, on the other hand, uh, you know, University of Chicago is a good example. Both the, the president and, and the dean of the law school are, are pretty good at saying, look, we're not the speech police. We're not getting involved. You don't like what someone says, the professor, the invited speaker, um, your classmate, whatever, whatever. Um, you know, take it, take it elsewhere. We're, we're not going to adjudicate these, these disputes about who said what to whom and who's offended and, and all of that. Uh, that's the only way to kind of, um, uh, lower the heat on, on these kinds of, uh, battles. The, the only way to win is not to play, uh, to invoke, uh, war games from 40 years ago, I think at this point, classic Gen X movie. Yeah. We've seen that play out before when, when leaders take a firm stand on principle against this sort of, behavior, it usually dissipates. Uh, the classic example for me is University of the Arts, where students were trying to get Camille Paglia fired, and the university said, not now, not at UArts. You know, we're a school for art and artistic, free, free artistic expression is in our bones, and the idea that we're going to cancel speak because we don't like their ideas uh, is just ridiculous at UArts, so we're not going to do it. Well, Ilya, I, I'll leave it there. Um, I do hope that some of our listeners will come and see you for your third trip to New York <laughs> in a year uh, at our gala on April 18th. We've already sold a couple hundred tickets, but I, I believe some more still remain. So if you want to hear Ilya speak alongside Killer Mike and Nadine Strawson, uh, I think Fires Gala is maybe the only place that you'll see in a lineup like that. Um, you can head over to our website at thefire.org. I have collaborated with uh, one of Killer Mike's lawyers, though, who's a uh, First Amendment professor at the University of Richmond, uh, Eric Nielsen, I think his name is. Yeah, I've um, had him on the pod. Uh, he did rap on trial. There you go. With, yeah. Um, so yeah, he's a he's a he's a he's a pretty good uh, uh, speaker on free speech issues, particularly in in relation to rap. So Ilya, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure. This podcast was hosted and produced by me, Nico Perino, and edited by my colleagues Ella Ross and Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel, which is linked in the show notes, as well as follow us on 
Twitter or Instagram by searching for the handle Free Speech Talk. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash so to speak podcast. We take email feedback at so to speak at the fire.org and five star reviews help get more listeners to the show. You can leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And until next time, I thank you all for listening.